Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and result. Well, welcome to episode one. We're not counting the trailer really in those. So this is episode one, and it's a question that we get all the time, which is, can't you just give me a template or a blueprint or something that shows me how to build a successful practice? I get this question from sea to shining sea all the time from different people, and we're gonna unpack the way you wanna think about that. It's episode one. I've got construction going on outside my window. I got my second COVID shot yesterday. I'm achy, tired, and we are absolutely hauling the mail today. I really appreciate you joining us and can't wait to roll into the episode. This is sure to be another note-taking episode, so get your pad and pen ready, brew another cup of coffee, and get ready to roll. Here we go. So thanks again for joining me today. This is an episode that has really a pivotal question behind it. And like I said in the intro, it's one that we get asked all the time. People come to us in the early stages of building a group practice and they literally don't know what they don't know and they want a shortcut. They want a template, a blueprint, a framework, call it whatever you will, a paint by numbers approach to creating success. And there just isn't one. I'm going to give you a handful of questions today that you need to ask yourself and you need to grind through to get clarity on this. Now, let me tell you up front, I'm going to give you a lot of questions and some answers and ways to think about things today. You don't need to write everything down. My suggestion is for an episode like this, listen to it, digest it, get the thought process going. And if you're interested in the questionnaire that I'm working off of, feel free to send me an email. I'll be happy to send it to you so that you don't feel like you have to write everything down. Try to make this a little bit easier to digest along the way. So the reason that there's really no shortcut or a template or a blueprint or something like that to to, uh, creating automatic success is because success is different for everyone. It's different in what their risk tolerance is, it's different in terms of their time frame to create it. It can have a lot to do with where you are at a certain stage of life, too. And a lot of these things I'm going to rattle through today, DeWalker and I struggled with, worked through together as we were launching the new company, Polaris. So it's not too dissimilar from the way we approach things for ourselves and the business we're building than it is the, the advice I'm giving all of you in the audience in terms of how you want to think through building your business to a, a greater scale. First and foremost, I, w- I, I want to share with you a question um, that I think is, is pivotal to kind of orient your mind here. And the first question is, if we're having this conversation three to five years from now, at some point down the road, three to five years, what does success look like for you, both personally and professionally? 
these two aspects are intertwined. You can't separate the personal from the professional because let me let you in on a little secret. It's going to take a lot of time and effort to build a successful business. And that's going to detract uh, from time spent with your family or by yourself or any other endeavors you may have. The same thing can be said on a debt service level. You're probably going to take on a lot of bank debt and personally guarantee it if you're going to build a successful group. And these are things that you have to think through at both a personal and professional level. So again, if we're having this conversation three to five years from now, what does success look like for you both personally and professionally? And, and really to unpack that even a couple of steps further, are you motivated by wealth? Are you trying to create wealth out of an event like a, a transaction or a sale five years, 10 years, 15 years down the road? Are you looking to retire? Um, that could be dependent upon your age and stage of life. Um, are you going to use the sale of this business to fund your retirement or is your retirement fairly well uh, substantiated and this will be just a, a kicker in terms of the value of retirement? Are you still working clinically and do you want to or do you want to transition into more of a full-time CEO or business development type of a role? So what do you want your role to be three to five years down the road? Are you interested in mentoring? young dentists uh, and young associates. Obviously, attracting and retaining associates is one of the major problems in building a group practice. And mentoring can go a long way to getting those um, young associates um, up to a higher level clinically. And obviously, it helps to uh, increase their retention rate. Do you want to spend more time with your family? Or do you want to learn a new clinical skill? Or do you want to learn a new personal skill in terms of a craft? Like, do you want to learn how to play guitar or paint or any other endeavors outside of work? Are you interested in traveling? And if so, what that might, what would that look like in terms of time away from the business for big chunks of the time? Is it traveling for two weeks? Is it traveling for two months? That's going to have an impact for sure. Are you motivated more by an outcome like a sale event? Or are you motivated more by the journey? And what I mean by that is that some people who are highly entrepreneurial absolutely love building businesses. The journey is what excites them. The heavy lifting, the plug and chug, overcoming obstacles, creating successes. They absolutely are addicted to that journey. They're less concerned with the exit number in mind at some point down the road. And probably when they do exit, they're going to want to do it all over again. On the other hand, the journey may just be a means to an end for you. Um, it's something, it's the boxes you've got to check along the way. But what you're most interested in is a generational wealth creating outcome for you and your family. Nothing wrong with either one of those, but they're decidedly different for the individual leading it. How important is control for you? You probably started the business as a solo dentist in a solo practice where you had outright control over everything. Uh, you might have moved to multiple locations and control could be a little bit more problematic because you can't be in every location at the same time. And furthermore, you might have also brought in additional equity partners. And decision-making by vote uh, on day-to-day -day control or simple majority versus supermajority versus unanimous decision can be intense and problematic. 
And for those of us who are control freaks, uh, that can be an outright challenge. So how much control do you want to maintain in the organization? What's your realistic time frame here that we're talking about? I said three to five years because I think it's important to think through the next three to five years because you stand a better chance of, of controlling that period of time with some degree of, of certainty. Global pandemics notwithstanding, you know, the, the next three to five years, you would feel like you could control outcomes with that. 10 to 20 years down the road could be a little bit more of a challenge to forecast. But if you are building a business for exit, and you're not wanting to do it in three to five years, it may be that you want to exit sometime 15 to 20 years down the road. And it could be a scenario where your partners buy you out or all of you elect to sell the business um, to a, uh, an industry um, established DSO or a potentially a private equity group at that point in time. Are you presently living debt free or do you want to be debt free? This has a lot to do with your age and stage in life. Um, I can tell you it's a it's a different driver, again, if I relate it to me and to Walker at the stages where we are. I'm 50, he's 40, we've got different things going on in our lives. One of us is more um, uh, debt averse, I'll say, and one is more um, willing to, uh, to take on debt uh, to create greater opportunities. Nothing wrong with that, but obviously building a, a dynamic business the way you're thinking about is probably gonna require more debt. So how does that, enter into your mindset in terms of that growth strategy. And are you more interested in income or assets? Assets being wealth, essentially. Income and wealth are competing interests. You'll hear us talk about this from the stage, in our blog, in videos, certainly on podcasts, if we're with you one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, the challenge is that None of us do what we do for free. We all like being highly compensated and we all like the opportunity to, to buy and have nice things. Nothing wrong with that. However, if you're going to build a group practice, especially at a fast rate, you're going to end up plowing income back into the business versus taking it out um, as personal income because you want to substantiate the growth engine, the golden goose, so to speak, um, that, that can create a wealth changing event down the road. On the other hand, if you're more interested in, in deriving income passively from associates and other practices under your management, then you may not be interested in creating a wealth-changing event, and you might want to take income out of the business along the way to fund your lifestyle. Those, again, are two separate endeavors, and you have to think about them separately. So this, really, uh, th this, this sort of thought process that I've started out here really comes back to that central question of what are you trying to build? And really, why are you wanting to build it? I'll also tell you that your personal financial position in terms of assets, debts, monthly income, and monthly expenses has a significant degree of influence on what you are or are not able to do. And, and specifically, what I mean by that is if you are pulling all of the available cash out of the business to fund uh, a lifestyle that uses every dollar of that, you don't have a whole lot of margin for error. And you might want to get your personal spending, um, uh, be it debt service or monthly expenses, a little bit more under control to give yourself a little bit of a buffer there to make sure that you have a fallback position. Um, how much stress can you realistically handle during that growth journey? 
Um, this can be uh, stress in, in all shapes, sizes, and forms, honestly. And it could be uh, as a result of total debt service and debt load hanging over your head, personally guaranteeing it. It could be the turnover of key people. It could be the turnover of associates. It could be challenges um, working with any of your third parties uh, that directly influence the business uh, and on and on and on. But suffice to say, if you're going to build a larger business, and especially if you're going to build it on a fast clip, there's going to be a lot more stress involved. And you need to be mindful of that. So what are your personal time commitments? And, and where do you allocate your time outside of work? If the stress builds up at work, it's going to spill over into your personal life. And how much can your personal life really sustain that? Uh, then finally, is this a business that's built for sale and exit or one that's more built to operate? Um, again, those are two different endeavors, and, and we think about them significantly differently. So if it's built to sell, what is your walkaway number? If you're going to build this thing with the intent of exiting it, what do you want to get out of the sale of the business? And when I say that, I mean the net proceeds. That's cash in the bank after you pay off your debt, taxes, and any third-party fees. What is your walkaway number? You have to get clarity around that. And then you need to understand where you are currently from a valuation context. Because when you know where you are currently and you have clarity around that, and you know where you want to end up from a walkaway position, now we can connect those two dots and we can figure out, especially if we know the time frame that it takes to get there, we can figure out what the compounded annual growth rate is to get from today to that liquidity event five years, 10 years, three years, however many years down the road. You start to gain clarity around how much the business needs to grow on an annual basis and the burdens that'll base on the uh, that'll place on you. Based on that growth rate, what does it mean in terms of the number of practices you have to buy or build each year? You're probably not going to achieve your exit number through purely organic growth. You're going to have to expand your footprint. And depending on what your model is, is it a, a an acquisition-based model or a startup-based model? Those have different parameters around the time frame to get to that potential exit. So when we talk about acquisitions, we want to define what we call our target acquisition profile. And we also want to understand our de novo model if we're using a startup approach. Again, getting clarity on what those two are is vital to uh, your success along the way. Realistically, do you and your team have the back-end platform services to support that quantity and the level of growth? Back-end platform, I mean DSO, dental service organization. So all the administrative services that facilitate growth and they allow you to make acquisitions or startups and they increase the probability of success, how well-developed are those? Um, if they are uh, very well-developed, you probably got a lot more confidence in terms of how quickly you can move. On the other hand, if you feel like they're substandard, now would probably be the time to invest a lot of resources in those backend services to facilitate that growth. Do you have a designated launch team for a de novo or an integration team for acquisitions? These are the teammates 
that understand your systems and processes and training protocols. They understand how you want things done in those uh, new new locations. Um, if it's an acquisition-based model and an integration team, you also want uh, some of your core team members to understand how quickly you're going to ask that newly acquired practice to adapt and change what it's doing. Could be a lot of things immediately like payroll and benefits, could be things more slowly potentially like software changes and the like. So you wanna make sure that you've got your teammates that can execute at a high level and they know how you want things done and it, it creates greater success um, in, those, in terms of those new locations. Is your current lender willing to fund that overall level of, of debt that you're going to need to achieve that level of growth according to the projected pace. This is really key and one of the areas that people get into a lot of trouble. They have a great growth strategy. They go full gas to execute it. They find the businesses they want to buy or build, and then they go to their banker and lo and behold, they find out the banker isn't willing to fund it. And there may be legitimate reasons for that. I'm not pointing a, a finger at the, at the bank here, but what I will say is, if you have an aggressive growth strategy, you probably want to get that in front of your banker's nose and have him or her sign off on it before you start the whole process. Because if they're not willing to fund it, the likelihood of it happening is all but zero. Are you intending to hold 100% of the equity in this business? Or are you going to allow others to buy in or potentially earn in along the way? Are you going to allow any practices that you might acquire are you going to allow the sellers of those practices to roll equity into your business? This is that goes back to that question about control I mentioned before. And when you have multiple equity partners at different levels and what level of the cap table are they in? Do they have uh, voting and distribution rights and privileges? Bringing in others into the, the control of the business from a voting context um, can be problematic if it's haphazard. On the other hand, if you have a strategy and clarity around it, um, you probably have more confidence about having more equity holders in the business. This is certainly an area that does trip people up, and you, you do want to think through it thoroughly. And you obviously want to understand the um, premises around your operating agreement. Speaking of which, is your operating agreement solid in terms of decision making around a potential sale? And is there a continuity provision built into it? Here's what I mean exactly on this. So if you have a control provision in your operating agreement that says something to the effect of major decisions involving um, the sale of the business are dependent upon a unanimous um, voting provision, you might have a poison pill baked into your operating agreement. Uh, the philosophy being, hey, we're not going to sell the business unless everybody's in agreement on it. Well, that sounds good going into it. The, the implications of that upon exit is that you and your other nine partner, your other eight partners have what you think is a solid deal at the table. And you got one partner who owns less than 5% of the business who's a holdout and says, hey, guys, I think it's a good deal, but I'm not going to vote for it. But everybody's got a number. So if you want to buy me out or pay me off here, it'll cost you an extra million dollars to do that. I'd be lying if I told you that we hadn't ever seen that before. It does happen. Um, again, everybody's got a, a number and it could cost you money at the deal table. So understand in terms of your operating agreement, 
decision-making control, especially around um, uh, exit potential and sale of the business down the road. And furthermore, anybody that buys your business, if it's successful, is going to want probably you and all of the key people, be they leadership positions or certainly clinical producers, to transition with the business. So is there a continuity provision baked into the operating agreement that says, hey, if we sell the business, we're all agreeing to work a year, two years, whatever the number is, post-sale. You want to think through that. Finally, if you want to sell a business for a large sum of money, you really need to be prepared, essentially, to lower your standard of living along the way. I touched on this earlier because a lot of us have built businesses that we um, have a salary or a clinical compensation rate, and then the remaining distributable uh, dollars that are left over after all expenses and debt service, we take out to fund our lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with that if you want to keep it small and keep it all. But if you do want to build a, a faster pace, higher growth type of a business, you kind of need to, to, to fix your personal standard of living so that your personal standard of living is not 100% dependent upon taking every dime out of the business. You're going to want to reinvest some of those proceeds back into the business for growth along the way. You really can't do it on debt alone. So the question here is, is your personal lifestyle eating up 100% of the earnings of the business? Or are you living reasonably and prepared to plow money back into the business as a growth catalyst? So I touched on a lot of the built to sell questions you need to wrestle with, but not all of us are really looking to exit our businesses. We probably meet with I'd say 40% of the people or more of the people we meet with really are just interested in building successful businesses that they want to own and operate for the foreseeable future. There is obviously nothing wrong with that either. And if that's the case for you, if you're more built to operate, then I would ask, what's your driving purpose behind undertaking any of the risks involved to build, operate, and own this business? It's not going to be easy either way. If you're going to borrow more money and, and either build or buy additional locations, even if it's only one location every other year, you're going to have the same challenges around uh, you know, staff turnover and things going wrong and associate turnover and you know, dealing with third parties and everything like that. And those can be stressful, maybe not to the degree that a build for exit is on a faster ramp. But suffice to say, it's not as simple as owning and operating the solo location that you've built up to some lo successful level up to this point. Uh, what is your personal annual income goal as the primary owner of the business? This goes back to that aspect of, of deriving passive income, if you will, through the success and the growth of the business, predominantly off the, uh, the work of the associates. So do you have a personal income goal each year or a number that, that you need to hit to make it worth your while? And how long are you prepared to, to take uh, in order to get it there? Um, is this something that you're buying or building one every other year? And you're going to maybe end up with four or five locations over a 10-year period? Or are you, you know, wanting to, to get there at a lot faster rate? What do you want your personal role to be? Um, I mentioned this in the, the how you categorize uh, success, both personally and professionally, over the next three to five years. And some people love clinical dentistry. 
they want to build a bigger business that's not dependent upon themselves and their hands and their skill set um, to drive income, but they want to stay actively involved in treating patients because that's what they love to do. On the other hand, there are others who say, look, I, I like clinical dentistry. I don't mind filling in. I don't want the business to be dependent upon me. I'd really like to be a full-time CEO and enjoy the fruits of being a business owner and maybe work clinically one day a week or in a fill-in capacity. Those are two decidedly different tacks. So you want to understand what you want your role to be. And you also want to understand um, how long you want to achieve that if you're um, uh, looking to transition out of the chair. Um, obviously, a, a full-time CEO of a four or five location group practice is probably not going to make the same level of salary that a highly paid clinician would. So you want to make sure you understand the impact on the bottom line that you have to create um, to, to use distribution-based income to offset your clinical income. That's a lot of math, but there's certainly a way of getting there. It's one of the things we work with uh, for our clients as well. Um, it, so if you do want to replace yourself in a clinical role, you're going to have to pay an associate to do the work you're no longer doing, obviously. You probably are going to have to lower your standard of living along the way until you can grow the uh, earnings of the business to offset that is, is the mindset you need to have. And you want to understand how quickly it'll take to get there. Have you actually calculated the impact you need to make on the profitability of the business as the CEO to replace that income? Like I say, that's a lot of math. It's, it's a solvable item though. And you really want to understand with clarity so that you're not taking any risks on the personal side. You want to make sure that you can cover your monthly expenses and your personal debt service. I mentioned how long uh, do you intend to take to get there and what type of pace? Is it one per year or one every other year? Uh, and, and much like I said for uh, the built to sell opportunity, is your current lender willing to fund that overall level of debt to achieve those ends? Here's another question to wrestle with. Again, not a right or a wrong way to, to approach this, but do you think you need real DSO backend platform services to support the quantity and the level of growth that you're intending? This is really the one that gets people and they say, look, if I'm going to invest in backend support services and a full-blown DSO, I probably need that somewhere between five to eight locations, depending on how big they are and a lot of other factors. And I, I probably don't need to make those investments if I'm just going to end up somewhere three or four or potentially five locations. I would tend to agree with that. And, and this is a, a scenario where it does take some reinvestment in the business if you're going to build out those services. And so what we find is that a lot of people want to grow up to the point that they would need um, back-end services if they continued. Um, and that keeps the business somewhat manageable in terms of size and scope, obviously. Uh, do you have a strong operations manager with documented systems and processes to ensure the continued viability and performance of those locations? Um, if you do, you stand a real good chance of maintaining control, if uh, operational control, I mean. If you don't, that's something you're going to have to dial in before you uh, go down this path of growth. Uh, much like I asked about on the built-to-sell piece, are you intending to hold 100% of the equity in the business? Or are you going to allow others to buy in and earn in? Um, and, and this is, again, a great way to attract and retain associates. And finally, 
is your operating agreement solid in terms of that decision-making provision around continued operation and control, uh, as well as declaring dividends and taking on additional debt? Operating agreements are uh, critically important if you are going to bring in um, additional partners. And this is one area that we probably, I would say we we help guide the client to revise their operating agreement in I got to believe 80 to 90% of the cases. I can't think of a client where we haven't done that recently, honestly. So it's something that you definitely want to consider and you want to make sure you have great legal counsel um, as it relates to that. I know this was a lot. I know there were a lot of questions that I threw out at you and I talked through a lot of it at a fast, fast rate. I know many of you in the audience listen to our podcast with a, a pad and pen in hand and you try to write down a lot of stuff and kudos to you for that. Let me tell you, that if uh, if I went through this really quickly, simply email me. I'll give you my email address in a second. I'll send you the questionnaire template that I created for this episode so you don't have to write all this stuff down. Then you can kind of go back and listen to the episode a second time if you would like and scribble in some uh, comments and obviously take that questionnaire by yourself and really dig into the answers that move the needle for you. Everybody in the audience is different. Everybody's objectives and timeframes are different. And that's why there isn't one template or blueprint to create success. It all depends on what you want to do. Obviously, hope that you found this to be educational and informative. And, and I'm, I'm hoping you can find a way or an area in your business to apply it. So if you'd like to send me either questions that I, I went through quickly about any of the subject matter, or if you'd like to get a copy of the uh, questionnaire that I built for this episode, you can send me an email directly at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Perrin is P-E-R-R-I-N at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Stick around. We'll be right back with some, some additional thoughts and we'll wrap up the show. So a couple of things here as, uh, as we wrap up the show in the new and noteworthy section of the podcast, many of you who are on our email distribution list probably saw where we announced a new service offering called Discovery Day recently. It's something that DeWalker and I are really excited about. It's a lot of updated content with industry trends. Some of it is uh, hot off the presses as it relates to post-COVID impact. But there are many entrepreneurs out there that are early in their growth stage, um, and they, they literally don't know what they don't know. Some of them may have already stepped on landmines. Some of them can see some of the, the errors and challenges that a colleague might have uh, encountered. And the Discovery Day is, is a one-on-one -on -one service offering that we built uh, to allow people to spend a, a full day, a seven-hour day, with either me or DeWalker or sometimes both in a conference room, learning out of a, a standard deck of education um, that we give a, a copy to the client on. But the thing about that day is that the amount of time that we've allotted for it and the fact that it's one-on-one -on -one in nature really does allow us to go deep and dig into issues and concerns and situations that are near and dear to the client. No two days are alike in that context. Yeah, we teach some of the same fundamentals. It's good to know we create clarity around questions that they, uh, that they have when they come in. But we really have ample time to chase a lot of rabbits, as I like to say. So we're excited about that discovery day option uh, for people who are interested in building group practices. If you're interested in learning more about it, 
feel free again to send me an email. I'd be happy to give you some details on it. Pretty simple to schedule it if you'd like to do so. On a personal note, I wanted to share with y'all some things um, as we go forward in the podcast that are either you know, near and dear to me are things that I've found that are cool and they're worth sharing and that we talk about with clients occasionally. And and I'm not somebody that watches a lot of television. I tend to watch sports on TV and and that's kind of about it. I don't watch too many uh, seasons and series of things. And, um, you know, when, when everybody was binge watching Netflix last year, I didn't even uh, have a, a subscription to it, to be perfectly honest with you. But I, I stumbled across something that I thought was really cool that you might be interested in in viewing, and that's a, a series off of uh, CNN, of all things. Um, and it's called Stanley Tucci's Searching for Italy. And I'm a big foodie. I've never been to Italy before, but I love Italian food. I eat a ton of pasta. I'm a cyclist uh, as, a, um, as a personal athletic endeavor. So I, I, I tend to eat a lot of pasta and a lot of carbs. And I really do love Italian cooking and, and, um, that type of food is probably my favorite, but I've never been to Italy before. I also like good red wine and espresso to be perfectly honest with you. And Stanley Tucci is an actor who I didn't know. I might've seen him in some movies before, but I didn't know him by name. He comes from an Italian heritage on both his mom and his dad's side. Uh, and he's taken this opportunity to basically go to each one of the 20 different provinces or states or whatever it is that Italy terms them as and and, and kind of give some historical context around what that region is all about, as well as the food, um, the communal aspect of it, what makes those regions tick. It is extremely well done. Um, and, and and I loved it. I mean, I, I, I really, I almost binge watched it, honestly. So if y'all are looking for something that's not Game of Thrones or House of Cards or Breaking Bad or whatever else, uh, and you're looking for something that might be more of a documentary type of a series, Stanley Tucci's Searching for Italy on CNN is really worth a watch. Uh, And and I think they re-air episodes of it frequently, so you can probably uh, record it on DVR um, or on YouTube or something like that, whatever your TV provider is. I would highly recommend it. I've really enjoyed it. I just watched season one and I'm looking forward to season two. So I hope you had a lot of fun today and I hope you got a lot out of today's episode, obviously. If you did, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. That helps us in terms of rankings of the shows and everything like that. Um, and we really appreciate any comments um, that you're, you're willing to post or any comments and questions you're willing to share. I will be reading questions on the air going forward. And again, you can submit those to me directly at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Again, Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. And if you want to learn more about who we are and what all we do at Polaris, our website is PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber today. We'll see you on the next episode.